Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to season two of Vulgar History. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where I look at the scandalous stories of women from from history, basically, and then we score them at the end to see where they score on our scandalous scale. So the first season, the theme was well-behaved women don't make history podcasts, and we were looking at six women who are known about because they they bucked societal conventions. They were um, accused serial killers. They were con artists. They were murderesses. Um, basically, they gave birth to rabbits, various things that uh, made them sort of stand out in a way in various different cultures and societies where the job of a woman, especially an upper-class woman, was just to sort of be quiet and have babies. And this season... We're looking at a theme of women and leadership. And I'm not sure what the catchy title will be for for this season, although I guess since I'm recording this episode, I should decide pretty quickly. But it's something like women leaders and the men who whined about it. Because basically, just in my in my free time, I like to... Women's history is a thing I read about all the time for various reasons. Um, and I was starting to notice some weird um, parallels between the way that contemporary women political leaders or just women who are prominent in various ways are discussed in almost word for word, like the same way that people complain about women leaders over 2000 years ago. And so I thought I'd sort of trace the history of, of some of the more, I don't know if successful is the right word, I guess successful, yeah, because these are women leaders who actually accomplished things. They became leaders of things. Um, And just kind of looking at how the various patriarchal societies that they lived in made it even harder for them to be a woman leader and what maybe that tells us about the world we live in today. The first woman who we're going to look at is uh, Cleopatra, the main Cleopatra. There were several people called Cleopatra, so just to be clear, she, the one we're talking about is, I think, the seventh Cleopatra. But basically, she's the one everybody knows about at this point. We're going to get into this in a second. But there's a thing where in this era of Egyptian history, there weren't a lot of different names of people, especially within the royal family. In fact, the Cleopatra we're talking about had an older sister also called Cleopatra. So just like get prepared for some duplicate names. So I was thinking about Like this season, we're going to be looking sort of in chronological order, six different women who had leadership and how the men around them reacted to that and how they kept being leaders, even as men were whining about it. Um, The challenges they faced to become leaders when they were surrounded by men who were grossed out by the idea. And so I'm starting with Cleopatra, and it's sort of um, intimidating a little bit. The first season I did women who, to me, 
are like medium well known, but Cleopatra is like extremely well known. She's the first sort of heavy hitter we've looked at on this podcast. And I thought, ooh, you know, I really wanted to wait until I was really settled in to this whole podcast game before I dove into something this kind of well known, this uh, juicy. But then I was like, well, I don't want to not do Cleopatra just because she is famous. That's sort of like reverse judgmental or something. And it's just a really good place to start because you'll see moving ahead from here how the other, the next few women sort of, especially the next two we're going to be looking at, how Cleopatra's reign sort of affected the way that they led and the way that they were reacted to by, mostly, by their patriarchal society, but I'm going to say mostly men. So... That's what we're looking at today, is the story of Cleopatra. It is long, and it is interesting, and she's someone who, you know, there's always, like, Cleopatra Halloween costumes. She's a character on Clone High, like, there's the the old show Cleopatra 2525, where I think she was, like, reincarnated. Like, it's a name people have. Um, Pam Greer, I think, played Cleopatra Jones in exploitation films. Like, it's a name that is imbued with a sort of power, um... When you think about the name Cleopatra, even just looking at the Halloween costumes, it's like glamour and power and gorgeousness. Um, but the story of the woman herself is not something I knew in super detail until I started researching. And now that's what we're going to look at today. So the thing, many, many things to know. Um, I'll just mention that the main source I used for researching Cleopatra was the biography of Cleopatra written by Stacey Schiff, which is very, um, it's very readable. I mean, in terms of history books, there's like super academic history books and there's kind of like history for kids. And this is like a book for, there's a lot of really great information in it. And it's also written in a very accessible sort of mainstream way, which I think is great because that means more people can, will maybe enjoy reading it. And she has a really long bibliography basically she went through all the sources and she explains what those sources are and i'm just gonna use her as my source but just bear in mind that cleopatra was a very famous person in her day she was a queen of egypt and she was of macedonian slash greek descent and i'm bringing that up right now because there's no known writing about her by the egyptians or by the macedonian slash greeks So we don't know kind of how she portrayed herself, what she wanted people to think she was like, or how what her people from her own country thought of her. The writing we have about her is um, from several Roman men who just hated her and many of whom, well, some of whom lived at the same time as her and some of whom wrote about her after she had died. So basically it's like not objective sources, but when you look at... um, all of them in combination, you get some facts. And that's what we're going to try and look at today to see kind of what what was her deal, actually, as much as we know. And I need to do some place setting into the history of ancient Egypt, just so you know where she kind of fits into things. So because the status of Egypt as a country was super... It was kind of a trap for her. She was in this sort of situation where Egypt as a country was not doing amazing and then she became basically its queen but it was not Egypt was not at the prime of its time as like super amazing country that everybody wished they could live in so briefly um a bunch of independent villages 
uh, combined into the Kingdom of Egypt around the year 3150 BCE. Um, if you didn't, if you haven't come across this before, some people call years before zero BC for before Christ, and some people call them BCE, which is before Common Era. I tend to use BCE, but just to save us all from me saying acronyms all the time. I'm just going to say numbers from now on, but just bear in mind, this all takes place before the year zero. So all the numbers are going to be getting smaller the later in time we get, basically. So Egypt founded 3150. Um, and then there was the old kingdom. There was the new kingdom. It was It became a really successful kingdom because of the Nile River, um, which flooded every year and that helped with their crops. So they had amazing crops, which meant that people wanted to trade with them, which meant that they themselves could feed their citizens. So compared to other nearby areas, Egypt was able to progress in a way other places weren't because they didn't have to worry about food and money to the extent that other people did. So they just started developing this kind of sophisticated cultural identity. Um, there were some previous women leaders in Egypt. Cleopatra was not the first well-known. Um, there was a woman named Hatshepsut who who ruled during the what's known as the New Kingdom era, which was about 1550 to 1069. So this is still like a thousand years before Cleopatra. Anyway, so it was uncommon for women to hold solo leadership roles in Egyptian society, but Egypt wasn't like grossed out by the idea of women being in control. So Hatshepsut, for instance, ruled for about 20 years alongside her husband. Um, and then after, so she's powerful in combination with him. Often in, in Egyptian scenarios, you had like, there was always a man-woman pair. There's always a king and a queen. And unlike in some other countries where the queen was kind of like just the wife of the king, here the queen like got to have power and influence of her own. Um, basically, years go by, and Egypt started fading in its significance and its wealth. And this is because the whole thing was dependent on the Nile River. And that's nature. And you can't always count on nature to do the same thing every year. So there were times of drought, at which point the they weren't able to, to get as many crops. So Egypt started doing less great. Um, and then suddenly it's the year 332 and the famous Greek teenager Alexander the Great stormed in and conquered Egypt. At this point, Egypt had been under the control of the Persians. So even the Alexander the Great and his uh, Greek forces weren't the first people to take over Egypt. But anyways, so he came in, Alexander the Great, a very successful person um, who you can read about in other places. But basically... Egypt had been under the power of a series of colonizers for a while, but Alexander came in and everyone kind of liked his approach. Like, they're like, if we're going to be oppressed and colonized, at least this guy sort of respects and pays attention to our culture a little bit. Um, Alexander created a new capital city named after him, which is called Alexandria. And then he left the, ki the kingdom under the care of his best friend and trusted general, Ptolemy. So, um... Over the next 300 years, Ptolemy's descendants would rule Egypt as the Ptolemaic dynasty. And so I mentioned that Alexander kind of respected Egyptian culture a bit. And by that, I mean, it's a complex thing when somebody comes in to take over someone else's country. But basically, Alexander and Ptolemy, they didn't come in to be like, okay, guess what? 
everything's like Greece now, let's just make change everything to be Greek. Um, they adopted several cultural practices from the Egyptians, including their uh, deities, their religion, um, the concept of incestuous brother-sister royal marriages. Um, they still celebrated all of the old architecture and beautiful buildings and statues, hieroglyphs, etc. So they didn't try and erase the pre-existing Egyptian culture. But at the same time, the Ptolemy rulers didn't learn how to speak the Egyptian language, which was its own language. I don't it was an Arabic. It was like its own language at the time. So the they were the kings and queens of Egypt for 300 years, but they conducted all of their business in Greek. So they adopted some Egyptian stuff, but they were still very much, even though they've been there for 300 years, like the people of Egypt knew, like these people are not Egyptian. They're not like us. And this is where we get into the fact that the Ptolemies only had a couple of, of names that they like to use. So basically, in this royal family, all of the boys and men, seemingly, were all named Ptolemy. They're just all named Ptolemy, just with a number afterwards. And the girls had one of three names, which were Cleopatra, Arsinoe, or Berenike. And today's heroine, who we're looking at, are Cleopatra. So she was one of at least four sisters. So she was called Cleopatra. She had an older sister also called Cleopatra. She had a sister called Berenike and a sister called Arsinoe, because those are the only names that existed for royal women. And we're just going to take a little look at the two oldest sisters to get a sense of kind of what, what life was like in this royal family. So brother-sister incestuous marriage was a thing the Ptolemies have been doing for like 300 years, inspired by what Egyptians have been doing before. And it was basically just to ensure, like, quote unquote, the purity of the family line. Like, so much stuff in history now makes me be like, oh, like the Targaryens in Game of Thrones, where it's like, no, the Targaryens in Game of Thrones were <laughs> inspired by the Ptolemies in Egypt. Um, but it's that same sort of thing where it's just like they were marrying within their family to keep it all sort of because they saw themselves as kind of the descendants of gods. And so they wanted to keep it within the family. But at the same time, um, I think just scientifically speaking, if your brother, sister inbreeding for 300 years, eventually, like, I don't, I think you're going to deal with quite a bit of infertility. So there was the Ptolemies, the various men who were all named Ptolemies, had mistresses and stuff. And sometimes their children would become the new king and queen. So it's, there's a large amount of inbreeding, but also there's like little bits of other genetics coming in to the point that by the time Cleopatra's around, was she entirely just of Greek descent, like almost definitely not. Anyway, um, so another reason why the Ptolemies like to marry within their family, and not just in like a 18th century, you know, Habsburg cousin marriage way, but like literally marrying brothers to sisters. Um, so they're doing that to maintain the family line, but also because they were so busy murdering and scheming against each other that introducing other people would make it be like even more chaotic somehow. So this was a family situation. We're going to be looking at in later episodes at um, some ancient Roman stuff, and it's it's similar. This is just like a time and a place in the world where you were either scheming to murder somebody or someone just murdered you because everyone was always scheming to murder each other. So like, it's not being paranoid to assume that your brother and sister are trying to murder you because they probably are. And oh, there's a knife in your back. Like, it's just... That's the situation we're looking at. So within that context, to do well, you need to be also scheming and murdering other people. So so just bear that in mind. 
I guess, basically. Just like everyone is killing everyone all the time. Um, and in order to thrive, you basically had to kill your siblings before they killed you. So Cleopatra, she's one of four sisters, and their father is Pharaoh Ptolemy the Twelfth, who was the illegitimate son of Ptolemy the Eleventh. And he himself had only wound up Pharaoh because all of his other brothers had been murdered by each other because like can't stress this enough like in this family everyone was constantly killing each other all the time so cleopatra's mother was also named cleopatra so her mother was cleopatra the fifth and their oldest daughter was cleopatra the sixth again that's not our cleopatra this is her older sister with the same name so the mother died which is like thank god that's one less cleopatra in this paragraph um and so cleopatra the sixth again, not our heroine, her older sister, came in and to become the new queen because there had to always be a man-woman pair of king and queens. So they weren't married to each other, her and her father. Like, that's like the one step, I think, or I don't think they actually went to. But basically, there had to be a king and a queen. So with her mother dead, Cleopatra, the older one, came in to become the new queen. Um, But she was very quickly murdered probably by the next youngest sister who's called Berenike because Berenike wanted to have this power for herself. So Berenike becomes the new queen um, and then Ptolemy the Twelfth himself left town for, I don't know, business trip or something, at which point Berenike just seized the throne for herself. She was just like, guess what? I'm not going to share the throne with my father. I'm going to be just the queen, just me. That's it. Um, so in order to get the traditional sort of king and queen pairing, she could have married off one of her brothers to become like a pair to sort of fight against her father that way. But her two younger brothers were both basically preschoolers. So that wasn't going to give her like especially a lot of power or influence. And so she was and also she was like, guess what? I'm doing this by myself. I'm Berenike. I'm amazing. So her the men around her basically pressured her to marry someone because having just a woman in charge made them uncomfortable. So it's sort of like a woman could be in charge shared with a man or even shared with a little boy but by herself everyone was just kind of like oh no that's just not that's not what we do so after a few months Berenike agreed to marry her cousin Prince Seleucid um, but after one week she basically poisoned him to death because she didn't like him and again just everyone's killing everyone all the time um, she was not messing around basically in terms of killing she killed potentially her sister who knows maybe she killed their mother too she killed, but we do know she killed her husband after one week. So she chose a new husband whose name was Archelaus, but she didn't actually give him any power and continued to be in charge of Egypt basically by herself until her father, Ptolemy the Twelfth, came back to came back um, with the full support of the Romans. So he took over again, had Berenike executed. So at this point, there's just two sisters left: um, Cleopatra, aged fourteen, and this is from now until quite a while into the story the only cleopatra there is anymore so just just when cleopatra anymore so she's 14 years old and she becomes the new queen because berenike was killed um and she so she age 14 becomes the new queen of egypt but i just want to mention so ptolemy came back with the support of roman forces so this is at a time when rome was having their own drama um in Rome was doing well for itself. They were kind of running around, taking over other kingdoms, and they had sort of a decent alliance at this point with Egypt. So the fact that they were allied with the king um, 
meant sort of protection for them, meant that things were kind of okay in Egypt. They weren't at war against the Romans at this point. So Cleopatra, age 14. Um, what do we know about her at this point? And the answer is not much. But if you look at what we just went through, she would have seen a lot of murder happening. She would have seen um, two of her sisters and her mother all die in pretty quick succession. Um, she would have seen her father storm back into town with the Romans. She would have seen like, she was 14 years old, but she was not in any way naive to the world that she was living in, basically. So we don't know a lot about her early years because we don't have any writing about her from um, the Egyptians at the time. We only know the Romans just started writing about her when she started having dealings with people in Rome, um, which was when she was a few years older than this. But basically what we know about her education, for instance, um, is that it would have been extremely wide ranging. So unlike other societies that we've looked at, and we will look at in other episodes of this podcast, um, it sort of flips back and forth, various societies, and even within the societies, if it's seen worthwhile to educate girls or not. But luckily for Cleopatra, she was living at a time when it was seen, especially for royal girls, um, that she should be educated in every subject that was known at the time. So math, politics, history, philosophy, reading, writing. Um, she was fluent in potentially up to nine languages, including the language Egyptian, making her the first person in 300 years in her family to ever bother to learn the literal language of their literal subjects. So she's maybe savvy in a way. Um, there's a conspiracy, um, not a conspiracy, but there's like a theory that I that appeals to me which could be one of the reasons maybe she learned the Egyptian language could have been that she was at least part Egyptian. So her mother, her father's wife was named Cleopatra and she died. She had two older sisters. Um, Cle was Cleopatra the fifth also the mother of our Cleopatra? Like it's possibly not. It possibly could have been another one of Ptolemy's mistresses. Um, but basically, so if she was half Egyptian, then it would make sense that she would have picked up that language and she would have wanted to pick up that language and that would be sort of important to her in a way but we don't know that for sure um spoiler nobody knows what she looked like at all really what we do know is that she was probably not conventionally beautiful so this is i just want to let that sink in because she's famous as this like elizabeth taylor slash angelina jolie looking like goddess on earth basically but what we know about what she looks like is that there were some coins and she made every time she made a political move, she like had new coins made with her face on them. So we don't know how much the coins look like her actual face. And maybe she wanted to make herself look more manly or something to try and look more. I don't know. Anyway, the face that's on the coins is not like has not been done up to make her look traditionally femininely beautiful. Um... And also just a lot of the men, these Roman men who were writing about her, did not shy away from talking about how gorgeous people were. Like, wait till we get to Mark Anthony. Like, if she had been beautiful, they would have written about it, probably. And nobody really talks about what she looks like. So I think it's easy to assume that she must have been gorgeous. Because sort of in our paradigm, it's sort of assumed that a very successful woman... Um, would be gorgeous and able to manipulate men maybe and if she's not gorgeous then it's like well then how is she able to get so much power could it be that she was actually like smart and talented and that's just like makes people's brains short circuit to consider 
But basically, we do know that she had a beautiful voice, a beautiful speaking voice. um, And we know that she had this enormous amounts of personal charisma. She had that sort of thing where when you go, she walks into a room, even though like she's the one who's like literally dressed in literal gold, like all eyes go to her and she makes people feel special when she talks to them. Like she had really great um, just skills, conversational skills. So she had this personal magnetism, was probably not conventionally beautiful, even for the time. Um, But basically what she had learned by age 14 is, I I would assume, don't trust anyone in your family ever. Um, And if you're going to try to take over as a woman leader of Egypt, you want to make sure you have powerful allies on your side because people are not going to take to that very well, presumably. And so... When she was about 18 years old, um, she'd been queen for four years. She had not been murdered herself. So, like, frankly, that's an achievement. Her father died. Um, He had written in his will that he wanted Cleopatra to marry her younger brother. And so that's what happened. He became her co-ruler, Ptolemy XIII. So he was also, like, 10 years old or something. So basically... She had been co-ruler with her father, and then suddenly she's 18 years old um, and being told she has to job share with her, like, tween-age brother-slash-husband. So, right away, and she had spent four years, I'm going to guess, theorize, um, making alliances with advisors and that sort of stuff. So she was able to work with those people, like, using pre-existing relationships she already had um, to cut him out of most of the job duties. So his name was removed from official documents. She minted new coins that showed only her face instead of both of them. Um, And both of these actions were basically declarations of war. Um, And everybody, by everybody I mean, um, her brothers, advisors, and regents, who were a group of men, um, got really mad about this because she had sort of snuck around behind everyone's back to claim extra power. And she'd also upended the expectation that queens should be subordinate to and supportive of kings. Like a woman, the whole idea, like going back to what her older sister tried to do. Like, it was just shocking. It just like did not compute to them. Like a woman having power on her own. It's like, no, she needs to share it with a man. Like a woman can have some power, a royal woman, as long as she shares it. And Cleopatra's just like, fuck that. And off she went. So she had her own supporters, but her brother had more supporters and she wound up exiled from Alexandria. So she headed off, or sorry, exiled from Alexandria. So he was still living there being the pharaoh and she was sent off into exile. She took her younger sister, Arsinoe, so that she still had one more sister left. I just like picturing them as this like sort of um, Grand Duchess Anastasia and her sisters slash little women slash Pride and Prejudice, just this group of four girls who are just like, each of them more cool than the next. So she took her little sister, Arsinoe, and they went off and to Syria to just kind of figure out what they're going to do. And what she figured out she was going to do was to take advantage of the currently ongoing Roman civil war to get them on her side, to be her backup, to defeat her brother slash husband. So, which brings us to the history of ancient Rome, which is like, there are year-long university courses in that. So we just need to blitz through to catch up to where we are. So basically what you need to know at this point is that Romans, um, Roman men, Roman society, Roman culture hated women, basically. They sort of, in the sense of like the legitimate meaning of misogyny, like they just did not. So women in ancient Rome did not have any 
rights at all. Like they were, so first of all, their understanding of medicine, um, of obstetrics, was that basically within the womb, everyone was sort of like, starts off as a woman and then just like becomes a man. So people, babies were born as girls, biologically, with the genitalia of of the female sex, were seen as sort of like men that didn't quite make it all the way. So women are seen sort of as like, literally as like incomplete men. So they never had any rights in ancient Rome. Like they didn't, not just like they couldn't vote, but like they couldn't go outside of their houses by themselves. Like they were always under the control of a male relative. Um, women were possessions. Um, Rome, ancient Rome at this time was also a place that had slaves. Um, and so women and slaves and like chickens were all just kind of like things that were owned by men that men could control. So Roman men hated women. Um, and Romans at this point really, really hated the idea of a hereditary monarchy. So this is the situation where Rome had been controlled. It was the Roman Republic, which was sort of an, oh my God, <laughs> this is not my area of expertise, but basically a democracy situation. People were voted into power. They had terms. They weren't in charge forever. Um, they got to sh job share. Like the at this point, there was the triumvirate. So three people sort of were all in charge, but just for a five-year term. So Cleopatra was a powerful woman who is also from a hereditary monarchy. So she was basically their worst nightmare. Um, so at this point... Well, I guess we're just catching up to this point. 20 years before Cleopatra was born, there was, uh, so Roman was constantly having civil wars, basically. So 20 years before Cleopatra was born, a man named Sulla took over as sort of emergency emperor during the civil war era. Um, and that was just supposed to be sort of like for a short term during the emergency. But then the younger men in Rome were like, oh, so one person could be in charge. And that inspired them to sort of try and want to do that again. So younger men like Julius Caesar and a man named Pompey decided that they'd kind of like to be in charge themselves. Caesar and Pompey didn't want to share. So they became fighting against each other and just kind of kept on fighting. And suddenly it's the year 48 BCE. And that is where we're caught up to where Cleopatra is. So Cleopatra's on, in Syria with her younger sister. And she's trying to figure out how to defeat her brother husband. Caesar and Pompey are at war against each other. So remember when the Egyptians came or the Romans came to support Cleopatra's father. So there's still a sort of alliance between Rome and Egypt. So Pompey uh, fled to Egypt where he thought he could find refuge for a while. But basically he was stabbed to death upon arrival because that's just like how Egypt welcomed people, apparently. Um, so he was killed in Egypt. Caesar, even though he'd been at war with Pompey, wasn't was sort of upset that Pompey had just been like, randomly murdered in Egypt so he was just like okay Cleopatra could you please reconcile with your brother husband and just like calm down and be like a nice little subordinate ally to Rome Cleopatra of course did not want to do this she didn't want to reconcile with her brother she wanted to defeat her brother so she decided what she needed to do was to get Caesar to join her side against Ptolemy so this is where if the people of Egypt have been bigger fans of the Ptolemies this um Greek dynasty that had been in charge of them for 300 years the egyptians might have stepped off up to offer her assistance to take down her brother but the fact they didn't do this is maybe one small clue to the fact they viewed both her and her brother husband as their oppressor not as their legitimate rulers like they would be her the army but they weren't gonna like 
revolt for one of them above the other basically so this is the moment the famous cleopatra meets julius caesar moment so in legends based on some very dramatic writings some people think uh she might have hidden herself in a rolled up carpet and then had the carpet carried into julius caesar's room and then she was just like surprise like like a, a showgirl popping out of a giant cake or something that i mean again we're looking at sort of like third fourth hand information this may or may not have happened but we do know for sure that she snuck off without telling her brother and she secretly met with Caesar and whatever she said totally worked because he came out of this meeting willing to ally with her against Ptolemy. And then they basically became a couple. And that is what happened. So this is where it would be very easy if Cleopatra had been very like conventionally beautiful, very sexy, very sexual. It would be an easy way to explain how and why Caesar decided to, to side with her right at this point if he if she just like literally seduced him but the thing is that she was not conventionally beautiful she was like magnetic and charismatic and like interesting and like super smart um and also julius caesar had spent his life in rome a place where like women were not given this much education women didn't have this much power like someone like cleopatra would be totally foreign to him so just she is a person could have been part of why he was what attracted him to her and then also just in terms of the like seduction side of things is that cleopatra had been married to her like teenage brother for the past several years before that was co-queen with her father and so i don't think it's a giant leap to think that perhaps she was not at all um very sexually experienced um even though she's known as this famous like seductress the only men we know for sure she ever had sex with were Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony. But basically, um, she was assertive, she was poised, she had this self-confidence of somebody who had been raised being told that she was literally a goddess and had been queen since she was age 14. Um, and so another thing to consider too is that in the ancient world, a lot of times alliances were sealed with people, with marriage alliances and or babies. So it could have been she was just thinking like, I don't, we don't know her psychology. But also, this is the Vulgar History Podcast, so whatever. Like, I don't think she w her first go-to was like, I'm going to seduce this, like, 50-year-old man, and then he'll do what I want. Like, I don't think she would think that, because that's not a very foolproof plan. And Cleopatra, as we will see, always had, like, a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. Like, she didn't do things without having it planned out very well in advance. But basically, she needed somebody to side with her against that. Um, if she had to sleep with Caesar... I'm sure she was up for that. Um, she might have thought like having sex with him, having a baby with him would make a sort of alliance. Like she was technically married to her brother. He's technically married to someone else, but like, so they couldn't marry each other. But basically um, having a baby was nothing compared to like murdering family members, which is what people were doing around her. So whatever she did, Caesar was totally on board. But so you're like, okay, this is great. Like I see where this is going. This is familiar to me from the Shakespeare play, but Oh no, because there's time for another plot twist, which is that, remember her younger sister, Arsinoe, was just as badass as her three older sisters. And if you ask me, um, I think also sort of in like a little women slash Pride and Prejudice way, just like if the younger sibling keeps getting just kind of like learning from the older ones, the younger siblings just get cooler and better and more and more badass. And so she was just like, I think this is my chance, you guys. So 15 years old, Arsinoe um, decides to try and take over Egypt herself with 
their other brother, whose name is also Ptolemy, to be with as her co-regent. So basically, so she's 15 years old. She decides she's going to defeat Julius Caesar and take over all of Egypt. And Arsinoe is amazing. And you should watch the Drunk History episode about this. Anyway, so Arsinoe, what she did is she had this um, helper, I guess her mentor slash pal slash palace eunuch. His name is Ganymedes. She just like with his help and support, she declared herself Queen Arsinoe IV and took control of the Egyptian army, which is just like 15 years old. Like these sisters are amazing. Um, she named Ganymedes as her second in command. She commanded the Egyptian army in battle against the Romans. Um, she used some clever tactics, like closing off some streets in order to trap Caesar and Cleopatra in the palace. Like, and they were trapped there for an entire year. Like, this wasn't just like a short-lived thing. Anyway, Caesar eventually was like, okay, I'm going to be defeated by one of history's coolest teenagers. Cleopatra was like, can you just get rid of my sister? Whatever. Um, so what happened here is that... There was a final battle. Um, Ptolemy drowned to death um, and Ganymedes died in battle. So Ptolemy, the one who was married to Cleopatra, drowned. Ganymedes, who was Arsinoe's helper, died in battle. And then eventually the Egyptian army, who again are just kind of like people of Egypt who had been sort of colonized and oppressed for a long time, who were just like, can like anything just settle down ever here? So they decided ultimately they weren't on team Arsinoe. And so they decided to exchange Arsinoe for, for Ptolemy, sorry, for Ptolemy, the other one, because there's two brothers, remember. Basically, all told, what happens is the Egyptian army betrayed Arsinoe. She wound up a Roman prisoner, and she's forced to be included in Julius Caesar's victory parade, humiliating herself in front of everyone as a captive queen, like a parade went down the street, like a massive parade. Um, I feel like it was something like a multi-day parade. It was like very visible um and she was like in a cage in front of everybody and it was just very humiliating for all of her and then she was sent into exile and we'll hear about her a bit later but that's basically her big that was her big moment but back to cleopatra so right now so it's the year 48 uh julius caesar's term as consul was due to expire because remember it was just like a five-year thing but he was like inspired by sula so many decades before he got one extra year as emergency dictator because he was like who else but me can settle the dynastic troubles in egypt because i'm sleeping with cleopatra so he appointed cleopatra co-ruler alongside yet another ptolemy brother i'm um, sorry ptolemy it's uh, it's spelled with a p at the beginning so it's like pterodactyl and it's hard for me to not say the p ptolemy ptolemy the 14th so she cleopatra at this point age 22 pregnant with the baby of julius caesar in order to rule Egypt, had to marry her 12-year-old brother. It's like she is never not having to marry her 12-year-old brother, all of whom are named Ptolemy. Um, but basically, she was technically married to this little boy, but she lived with Caesar as long as he was in Alexandria. Um, Caesar was out of town when her son was born on June 23rd in the year 47 BCE. The son was named Caesarian, or potentially it's pronounced Caesarian. But basically, it's a Greek name that means basically Caesar Jr. And she told everybody that the father of this child was Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar never officially acknowledged Caesarian as his son for various reasons, um, mostly because he was married to someone else and Cleopatra was married to someone else. And this was all kind of messy. But 
basically she had just given birth to a son who was maybe going to be the next emperor of rome because rome is headed in sort of a dynastic sort of direction instead of a voting people in direction so cleopatra and her brother husband went to rome um they left baby caesarean behind because it was like 47 bce and like it's hard enough traveling with a baby now imagine then um with no you know antibiotics or whatever Anyways, they moved across into a villa just across from where Julius Caesar lived with his wife in Rome. Um, and everyone kind of found this weird. But Julius Caesar at this point was just going full, like, narcissistic, dictator type thing. He was very um, doing his own thing and not caring what other people thought. And that's not going to end well for him. But this is an example of the sort of stuff he had done. Um, so Caesar at this point was busy overseeing the construction of a new temple to the goddess Venus. Um, which included a huge gold-plated statue of the goddess of Venus. And he was like, you know what this this temple needs? is a giant gold statue of Cleopatra, my lover, as well. So the temple put up a giant statue of Venus, and next to that, a giant statue of the Queen of Egypt. And everyone was just kind of like, okay, this is all getting kind of weird. Um, and then comes the Ides of March, famously where Caesar was stabbed to death by a bunch of his former friends who were just kind of mad at his, like, self-declaring himself emperor for the rest of all time, etc. Um, Cleopatra was like, okay, so great. So my baby son is going to be the new emperor of Rome, right? And the Romans were like, actually, no. Um, um, and in fact, Julius Caesar had adopted his, this kid named Octavian, and so we think that person's going to maybe take over. So Cleopatra just kind of packed up her things and pieced out of Rome, heading back to Egypt to regroup. Um, but knowing what we know about Cleopatra, like I'm sure, like when, by the time you're 14, you've seen so many of your family members kill other family members. Like I'm sure she was like saddened, maybe surprised at the details, but like not shocked that Caesar ended up getting stabbed. So I'm sure she already had other plans. Um, she had figured out kind of who had power in Rome, who could maybe be her new ally with him gone. Um, and then wouldn't you know, while well, on her way back to Egypt, her brother, her husband died of some sort of illness, um, slash was probably poisoned, probably by her, um, with him out of the way. There's no more little brothers, thank God, finally. So her co-regent becomes her son, three-year-old Caesarian. So she was now basically the solo queen of Egypt. Like there's still the male-female pairing of king and queen, but the king in this instance was three years old. So basically, she was in charge, but she still needed the assistance of Rome to stay in power because there was people in Egypt who didn't love this whole turn of events. Basically, um, and this is when and why she turned to a guy named Mark Antony. So Mark Antony is like, just get ready. I love, I love reading about Mark Antony. He's just like heartthrob and himbo of the ages. So... What had happened is that Joe Caesar was assassinated, partially because he wanted to be solo emperor, and people were mad about that. So they didn't want to make his heir, Octavian, the new emperor, on his own. Instead, they said, like, what was set up? And by they, I mean the senators of Rome. They set up a triumvirate of three leaders. So Octavian, who's this, like, teenage asshole. Um, Caesar's former right-hand man, Mark Antony, who's this, like, really successful war general and a third guy named Lepidus. So these three men weren't super psyched to share power with each other because first Sulla and then Caesar had made everyone kind of think like being solo emperor was kind of where it's at. So they sort of divided up most of the Roman Empire. 
So Octavian controlled most of the Western bits. Antony controlled most of the Eastern bits. Lepidus is just like, who cares? Um, and the whole thing drilled down to basically Octavian versus Mark Antony. And one or the other was going to kill the other because basically they weren't going to share. So um, in you remember when I mentioned how people weren't really writing about Cleopatra being gorgeous, even though they wrote about other people being gorgeous. And Mark Antony is one of the people who's written about being gorgeous. He had, quote, mighty thighs, um, a perfect face, curly hair, total dreamboat, just like amazingly sexy, good looking guy. He's also really good as a war general. So he's like accomplished, smart, good looking, thighs, wearing his like little Roman miniskirt, just like basically... So he was gorgeous and also really well accomplished and also really, really, really popular. And Octavian was kind of this like sickly, skinny teen. Oh, he had blonde hair. Mark Antony had dark hair and Romans like dark hair better. So Octavian was just kind of this useless little skinny kid. Mark Antony was this like bread pit type thighs god person. Um, And so Octavian needed to figure out a way to turn everybody against this like dreamboat basically here's what happened is that mark antony was fighting against octavian but he needed funding to help support his side of the war um cleopatra needed romans to be on her side to just sort of like maintain her amount of power so mark antony contacts cleopatra to see if she could maybe help fund what he was up to so he sent an invitation for her to come visit him and she was like "Mm, thanks but no thanks and like totally turned him down so she and he kept inviting her and she kept refusing because she's just like Cleopatra goes or Cleopatra decides to go she does not answer other people's invitations finally she was like guess what okay I'll come and visit you so um bear in mind that purple was the most expensive and rarest dye in this place and time because it had to be made from the slime of thousands of sea snails which meant it took forever to like make the dye it took forever to dye things so the fact that Cleopatra sailed up to meet Mark Antony in a ship with purple sails was just like the equivalent of like flying in in like a plane made of gold and diamonds, basically. So also the oarsmen were using silver oars, like made literally out of silver. So it's just like giant knives glinting in the Mediterranean sunshine. So it's just like this boat that's just like money basically she's like oh you want me to fund your little war i don't know could i spare that much money i don't know what do what do my purple sails and my like silver oars think so antony is just like hanging out waiting for this meeting and then cleopatra makes comes like sailing up on the ship so she was dressed up like the goddess isis um covered in jewels surrounded by incense so you could literally smell the decadence of what was happening she had little children dressed like cupids running around her with little bows and arrows which is like who are these children where do they come from i don't know but basically she just like swans in i'm picturing it's just like the most like rihanna thing just like i'm picturing her lying sideways on a sofa because that's how she's always drawn but also it's like how else could you make that entrance basically so her boat is like sailing up to meet mark antony and he's like okay great this is like more than I expected, but her boat just keeps going. It sails right past him. And Mark Antony is just like, what just happened? So basically he's like, okay. So he went up her ship, like docks and she goes over to her ship and she's like, that's how it works. Like you come to my ship. I don't come to you. I'm motherfucking Cleopatra. So he went over to her ship and she was like, Hey, we're just having this like 
opulent feast why don't you just have some wine and music and jewels and just like hang out here for like literally 48 hours um and two days later a deal was struck where she'd help support him in his battle against octavian and he was completely in love with her and like of course he was so um also during this sex summit um cleopatra got antony to agree to um have arsinoe put to death because she was sort of a threat to her still as the only other surviving sibling arsinoe is still alive just like living in this sort of place in rome um antony arranged for arsinoe to be murdered so arsinoe was murdered on the front steps of this temple where she'd been living in sort of sanctuary and this kind of rubbed the people of rome the wrong way because they really took sanctuary and religion really seriously but anyway, Arsinoe, R.I.P. Cleopatra, now the only surviving member of her immediate sibling group. So um, she and Mark Antony almost immediately seemed to have begun a physical affair. And like, can you blame her? Like he was just like gorgeousness personified. Can you blame him? She was just like literally goddess. Um, so like even just in reading, reading this stuff, reading third hand accounts of them together, it's just like they have like palpable sexual chemistry and also she got she'd been married to her teenage brother her like 12 year old brother she had a child with julius caesar who's like 50 when she was like 20 and now she's got this like man who's like similar age to her who's also like literally a sex god um so like of course she was they were both into it um bear in mind of course that um mark antony was married to someone else because everyone in the story is but that didn't stop them anyway so, um, Mark Antony had always been known for throwing these, like, amazing, luxurious, decadent parties. Cleopatra was just, like, ready to let loose because she'd spent her entire life waiting to be murdered by her siblings. They were now all dead. She was on top of the world. And so they just started throwing parties all the time. They started a sort of club called the Inimitable Livers, like, L-I-V-E-R-S, like, the body organ that, like, gets affected when you drink a lot of alcohol. So it's basically just, like, a bunch of people who could drink a lot. Um, they spent literally days in bed together and were just like being amazing all the time. Um, they weren't just like shirking their responsibilities either. They were also being like successful leaders, um, just like being amazing, doing amazing, having this amazing sex life, just like good for them. Um, but so what happened is that, uh, Cleopatra at this point, who had always been very careful and very good about planning for contingencies she seems to have underestimated octavian um who still had it out for antony so he was kind of well they were just like having this like power couple dream life octavian was just like i don't know maybe fleshing out a bit from his like sort of sickly skinniness and becoming more powerful little did they know so in around the year 40 cleopatra gave birth to boy girl twins um the daughter was named cleopatra because that's of course um, and the boy was named Alexander after Alexander the Great, who was actually one of Mark Antony's ancestors. Antony actually acknowledged these as his children, which Caesar never did with Caesarian. Um, shortly after the twins were born, Antony's wife died. She probably wasn't poisoned. I think she just died. Um, and then to try and make peace between the two warring Roman factions, Antony agreed to marry Octavian's sister, who was named Octavia. So he married someone else even though cleopatra had just had his children um so cleopatra was just like raising three small children and suddenly 
her time was being taken up by King Herod of Judea, who is from the Bible, the one who you might know from his greatest hits, including demanding that all babies be killed in case one of them was Jesus um, and sort of inventing Christmas, basically. So the thing is that Egypt and Judea were both kingdoms allied with Rome. They were geographically close to each other. And Cleopatra was friends with Herod's mother-in-law against Herod and basically so Herod was distracting her he's an asshole whatever so Cleopatra goes to visit Antony in the year 37 um, he met there the twins were at this point three years old it was the first time he met them and he enjoyed meeting them and then later on Cleopatra gave birth to another child with Mark Antony as the father and this was a son named Ptolemy because the story needs a Ptolemy again but this one's called Ptolemy Philadelphus um, so Cleopatra is just like having these children. She put all of her eggs in the basket of supporting Mark Antony as the next emperor of Rome. And the reason she's doing this is because she thought he was going to win. And if her lover slash baby daddy was the leader of Rome, then that's great for her. So everything depended on Octavian not winning. But tragically, Mark Antony had started to um, do less well in his military stuff and his psychological state was becoming sort of undone. Um, and it all sort of came to a head when Cleopatra and Antony staged a huge festival slash party called the Donations of Alexandria. So this was sort of a big party where like Antony was not doing amazing vis-a-vis military victories, but they, he had just had one military victory. So they threw this party to try and like for PR to make everybody think Antony was doing great. So they would all keep supporting him. So his campaigns in Parthia and Armenia. So his campaign in Parthia had not gone well, but the one in Armenia had gone well. And so they just wanted to sort of focus on that. So this is similar to, do you remember when Arsinoe was marched through the streets of Rome as prisoner of war? So this was sort of a similar thing, except they were marching the Armenian royal family um, in front of everybody as prisoners of war. They were told to kneel before Cleopatra, the Armenian royal family, and they did not, um, which made her freak out. Um, and that just kind of made the whole thing not look as good for them as they were pretending like things were. Anyway, for the grand finale, Mark Antony dressed up in a costume, um, dressed up like Dionysus, the Roman god of wine, and Cleopatra dressed up as the Roman goddess of love, Aphrodite, but slash also sort of as the Egyptian goddess of life and magic, Isis. Her son, Caesarian, was dressed up as the god Horus, who is the son of Isis. And then everyone in Cleopatra's family got a new name and or title. So her daughter, so she herself, Cleopatra, was proclaimed queen of kings, queen of Egypt, as well as queen of Cyprus, Libya, and central Syria. Um, Alexander, the boy twin, was given the middle name Helios, which means the sun, and was named king of Armenia, Media, and Parthia. So now he's Alexander Helios. Her daughter, Cleopatra, was given the middle name Selene, which means the moon, so Cleopatra Selene, and she became queen of Cyrenaica, Cyrenaica and Libya. Ptolemy Philadelphus was named king of Syria and Sicilia, and Caesarian was proclaimed king of kings as well as the legitimate heir of Julius Caesar. So this is just like a full mic drop, just like our family is the royal family, we're in charge of everything, here we go. Um, there's some speculation that potentially Cleopatra and Antony were officially married during this event. And certainly they were started acting like he wasn't married to anyone else, even though he was still married to Octavian's sister, which just kind of made even more bad feelings over the for everybody. 
And ultimately, this whole event, the donations of Alexandria, seemed to the people of Rome, who were like, they were never into sort of luxury and glamour and the way that Egyptian culture had sort of had these beautiful gold, like, they just thought it was tacky. Like, Egyptian culture to them was tacky. Roman culture was all sort of like state. It was like white columns. It was just like plain togas. Like, they were also all killing each other and all having sex with each other, but they were like pretending like they were actually very morally upright. So Octavian sort of latched onto this being like, I'm Octavian. Like, I'm like you, Rome. I'm like really serious and monastic and Mark Antony is decadent. And it didn't help that he dressed up like the god of wine for this party. Anyway, so if you're wondering how a PR campaign is run in ancient Rome in a time before the invention of the printing press, the answer is um, hand calligraphy flyers. So Octavian just started having a bunch of flyers printed up or calligraphied for everybody to read that basically just said like Mark Antony is decadent he's terrible he likes luxury unlike I Octavian who I'm just like super straightforward Mark Antony wrote a letter back that also got printed on a flyer for everybody to read that was like dear like the letter was basically like dear Octavian yeah I'm fucking Cleopatra who cares I know that you're fucking lots of sex workers etc like what are we even doing you suck love Mark Antony it was a pretty baller move it was pretty excellent like you literally said something in the letter i don't have it in front of me but it's something like like this is the thing people have found it's like it's a letter that says like dear octavian yeah so what if i'm fucking cleopatra you wish like anyway so just a lot of flyers and this is where a lot of the big rumors we still know about cleopatra came into existence like that she's sexy and manipulating men with her beauty or she's using witchcraft or she is just using seduction to destroy Caesar and Antony because she wants to destroy Rome. Um, also, she's too powerful and smart. It's unnatural for a woman. Mark Antony does whatever she says, which is gross because women aren't people and men should be in charge, etc. Um, just the whole idea that she was like either beautiful and blinded them with sex, or if she wasn't beautiful, she blinded them with witchcraft and basically just misogyny, basically. But it was a way to bring down mark antony by bringing down her as well and honestly the whole thing about like did she ruin his life is totally backwards because really he was kind of ruining her life really like when they started hooking up he was this like roman hero who seemed destined to become the next emperor but then his hard drinking and partying lifestyle caught up with him um as did maybe you know that is it CTE, that like brain injury that happens with football players slash PTSD from being in war constantly his whole life. Like he was just having some psychological issues um, and he was sort of falling apart. Basically, like the whole deal of the relationship was based on him being this amazing military leader and her financing him. But he started, he was losing battles and so it was starting to look like a poor investment on Cleopatra's part, but she couldn't really extricate herself from this. Meanwhile, her whole life wasn't about Rome. Like during this whole time, she'd been running Egypt, literally like a boss. Um, she, her history there, um, she had forward thinking decisions about taxes and budgeting. She's doing her best to lead a country that was entirely dependent on whether the Nile flooded or not every year. Like she was governing Egypt as well as dealing with this whole Roman situation. Anyway, so what happened is that, so the whole thing with the whole five year job expiry 
something is that Mark Antony's um, time as a consul expired, but Octavian got reelected. So now Mark Antony was no longer a consul from the Roman triumvirate. He's now just like a regular Roman guy. So the fact that he continued to battle against Octavian with Cleopatra's funding became sort of illegal, just like a private citizen waging war against a country. So Octavian used sort of a legal loophole. Um, he had Rome declare war on Cleopatra for providing military support to a Roman citizen who's not a consul. So now the war wasn't just Octavian versus Antony. It was all of Rome versus Antony, and Cleopatra was in this kind of like awkward situation. So this war was mostly waged at sea, and Cleopatra and Antony initially were doing well there because they had more ships than Octavian did. But the thing is that their ships were kind of like a combination of like mercenary ships and like allies from various places, whereas Octavian's ships were full of like very well-trained Roman troops and soldiers. And it all came down to the Battle of Actium, which began on September 2nd in the year 31 BCE. And basically the battle ended when a bunch of people from Cleopatra and Antony's troops defected from their team to Octavian's team, and then Cleopatra and Antony fled the scene. Cleopatra headed back to Egypt, um, where, again, the people of Egypt weren't there like, oh my god, our queen, we're here and we'll support you, etc. This is where the whole like 300 years of oppression meant that the people of Egypt weren't super interested in standing up to her to fight Octavian. Like, they'd do their job and be royal guards, but they weren't prepared to lay down their lives and fight for her, as they might have done for someone from a different dynasty. So Cleopatra was now trapped in Egypt. Um, it seemed inevitable that Octavian was going to capture her. So, but, you know, never count her out. She started figuring out a new scheme. So she knew that Octavian wanted to keep her alive so he could march her through in one of these, like, humiliation parades. And she was determined that she would not let that happen. She also knew that he was intent on looting her treasure, all the gold and things that she had in her, you know, little secret caves and whatever. So she sent him a message saying that she's prepared to light herself and all of her treasure on fire. Um, this got his attention, and so he sent a representative to negotiate with her. The negotiations obviously didn't go well, and it ended with Octavian deciding to invade Egypt. Mark Antony was taken prisoner in his attempt to protect Cleopatra, and he died by suicide while in captivity. Uh, he was 53 years old at this point. Um, Octavian permitted Cleopatra to attend Antony's funeral, um, so she participated in the mourning rituals of the time, which basically meant screaming for hours and beating and clawing at your own skin. And as a result of this, she wound up with a bunch of infected septic wounds. Uh, she stopped eating, possibly in sort of like a slow suicide attempt, um, trying to die on her own terms rather than by execution or after having to be in the humiliation parade. Um, Octavian was not into that, and eventually she healed up. So, but during this time, pre-humiliation parade, Cleopatra ended up dying, um, age 39, sometime that same month. Two of her loyal maidservants, Iris and Charmian, died with her. This is where there's the rumor of the whole asp to the breast thing, and she did probably die of poison although the rumors of a snake bite are probably false. Cleopatra had always been really organized, really decisive. If she's going to kill herself, she wouldn't leave it to chance. Like, what if the snake didn't bite her in the right place? What if she didn't die of the venom? Like, there's too many, too many chances. So, allegedly, poison was smuggled to her in a basket of figs. 
um, which would be a terrible way to sneak a venomous snake in to see someone. So it's probably more likely the figs themselves are poisoned or there's a vial of something in there. Anyway, R.I.P., basically. Um, And just of interest, if you look at ancient Roman history and mythology, women dying by suicide is a weirdly common theme um, of women sort of wanting to not be a bother and just sort of like delicately and politely removing themselves from narratives. So, and this is kind of how Romans wanted women to behave in this kind of quiet way. And it seems sort of antithetical to how Cleopatra behaved. So the news of her suicide came from Octavian and was written about by these other same Roman men who hated her and they wanted to please Octavian. So it's possible that the whole suicide thing is a cover-up story concocted by Octavian and his men to try and hide something else that happened. Like maybe Octavian did kill her. Maybe she was able to rally up supporters, staged a big coup and tried to escape and was killed in the battle. Basically, we know she died age 39. We know it is said it was suicide, but whatever the manner of her death, she almost certainly died on her own terms and it really pissed off Octavian. And so at least her death was a final fuck you to this guy who, spoiler for later episodes, really sucked. Um, Her legacy is sort of bittersweet. So her son, Caesarian, was renamed Ptolemy the 15th, and he reigned for only 18 days as the new pharaoh of Egypt. So Octavian tricked him to come and visit. Octavian was like, hey, Ptolemy, like, why don't you come and visit me? I'm totally not going to murder you. And then he, in fact, murdered him. So upon the death of Caesarian, the Ptolemaic dynasty came to an end, and Egypt was absorbed as a province of the Roman Empire. Cleopatra Selene, her daughter, married King Juba II of Namibia and Mauritania, with whom she had one daughter and one son. She had a son whose name was Ptolemy. Ptolemy, because that is just like the name of every little boy in the story. But anyway, this son, Ptolemy, grandson of Cleopatra, was later murdered by his cousin. His cousin, who was Caligula, the emperor, who, spoiler, we're going to be talking about also in a later podcast. 300 years later, Syria's Queen Zenobia who faced off against the Roman Empire in her own badass story that maybe we'll look at another time, claimed to be a descendant of Cleopatra Selene. The fates of Alexander Helios and Ptolemy Philadelphus, Cleopatra's other two sons, are unknown, although they seem to have been sent to Rome to be raised by Antony's widow, slash Octavian's sister, Octavia, following the death of their parents. And, I mean, I would not be surprised if they were murdered, but who knows. Octavian renamed himself Augustus and became the first official non-emergency Roman emperor. He renamed the month of August after himself, Augustus, um, because that was the month in which he had defeated Cleopatra, and it's still called August, and that makes me hate August because I hate Augustus, and what a dick thing to celebrate. Anyway, much of the legend of Cleopatra developed based on the Roman writings from around the time of her downfall, and they describe her as this witch slash slut slash seductress slash femme fatale who single-handedly destroyed Mark Antony's life in this, like, sexy way. But um, although these are the most widely known sources of information about her life, a few other things have been found that explore a bit more about not just her love life, but her political career and persona. So there's some med- medieval Some medieval Arabic writings seem to have been drawn from Greek sources that may present Cleopatra similarly to how she wanted herself to be portrayed. So these sources don't refer at all to her beauty or lack of beauty or even to her love affairs. 
Um, the focus instead is on her, her as a scholar. So she's depicted as a scholar known as Cleopatra the Wise, or the Virtuous Scholar, a woman revered for her intelligence and inventiveness, with keen interests in philosophy, alchemy, mathematics, and medicine. So that is the saga of Cleopatra. Um, it's such a story, and I can't even... So time to uh, just score her. On our various scales... Um, so the Scandalicious scale has got four categories. So the first category is Scandaliciousness. So this is sort of the quality of the scandal surrounding them. So I feel like in this instance, um, so Scandaliciousness would be things like her brother husband coincidentally dying just at the convenient time for her to want him to be gone. Um, scandaliciousness is like her having a child with a Roman emperor and then he supported her or like her having these children with Mark Antony. But it's tricky because, okay, scandaliciousness. Killing her brother, mega scandaliciousness. Um, she was surrounded by scandaliciousness. Lots of other people killing other people. But she had children with two different men both of whom she was seemingly like committed to. And yes, she was married to her brother at the same time, which is like medium scandaliciousness, but it's not like they were little boys at the time and it was sort of had to be that way for various reasons. I'm honestly, when you actually look at the facts of this whole story, I think the scandaliciousness scale is like not super high. I'm going to give her a five for scandaliciousness, I think. The next category is scheminess. And this is where like I... I think it has to be a 10. I mean, she took over Egypt. She convinced Julius Caesar to side with her. She then got Mark Antony to side with her. She seemingly killed her brother. Um, she had Arsinoe killed. Like, her plans, she had plans. They were good plans. She had backup plans. She executed those plans. 10 for scheminess, for sure. Significance is an interesting one because she's certainly a famous name. People know about her. And her involvement with Julius Caesar, there's, her story is certainly captivating. At the same time, she did more than I think anyone else could have as sort of in this era being the pharaoh of Egypt. But it was, it seems like sort of inevitable that Egypt would eventually be subsumed into the Roman Empire. And it was also sort of obvious, not obvious, but like that... Octavian was probably going to end up winning against Mark Antony. I don't like her significance, like she backed Mark Antony, who didn't win. So like in terms of cultural significance, she had children. Um, her daughter went on to marry the king of another place. But like in terms of like, did she change the world? Um, it's tricky. I don't want to give her too little credit. But at the same time, like she did amazing stuff. She's significant to me, I think a lot of people see her as an inspiration, but in terms of like success in the various cool things she was doing, I don't know. I'm going to give her a six for significance. The final category is the sexism bonus, which is um, giving bonus points based on how much sexism held people back. Um, how much did that play a role in there? What they were or were not able to do. And I mean, she faced, come on. I mean, like the Roman Empire is like, famously misogynistic um even in egypt where she was allowed to be educated and to be co-ruler she still couldn't be the queen on her own 
the way that Octavian used sort of slut shaming against her slash against Mark Antony. Um, I feel like that's pretty high. I'm going to give her a seven for that. So the total here is 28. So in terms of where that fits her, and this is all just like subjective scale, it's the same score as Lucy Hay um, and one below Elizabeth Bathory. So I think she's up there. She's up there at the top. I don't know. I feel like we're not saying who's the coolest woman. We're not saying like who's better than another one. We're just saying like in terms of this scale, where do people rank? And she ranks like pretty high. Like I don't know how many people are going to get any higher than that. Um, and now it's time for some some facts and information. So I have my first little sponsor, which is exciting. Um, which is Audible, which is where you can listen to audiobooks. And I did, I do a lot of my researching through audiobooks because that way you can just be like learning facts while you're like doing the dishes, while you're out walking, while you're doing your laundry, etc. And one of the sources I use for this is a book called When Women Rule the World by Kara Cooney, which is a book all about Cleopatra and some other Egyptian queens um, and you can get that on audible.com and so the thing is if you go to audibletrial.com slash vulgar history then you get your 30-day free trial and a couple little dollars go to me to support this podcast which is very appreciated you can also to support the podcast you can go to my patreon page which is patreon.com slash and foster writer and there's also we're on instagram at um at vulgar history pod or on twitter at vulgar history um those are the various things i guess my website is just annfosterwriter.com where i've got sort of a longer essay on cleopatra that i pulled a bunch of information for this podcast from and i'm really excited about this season um there's a lot to be rageful about there's a lot of assholes who are um doing dick things to these cool women leaders but also i think it's interesting to kind of see how there's always been cool women leaders in history. It's not some sort of weird new thing that's just happening. It's been happening literally forever. Um, oh yeah, and the other thing, so on my Patreon, if you join there, which is patreon.com slash Writer, I'm doing bonus podcasts there that are called So This Asshole, where I go into looking at some of the men from some of these stories where there's an interesting, just to kind of see like how awful were they basically and those are just patreon exclusive sort of spin-off podcasts but anyway the main podcast is here thank you for subscribing um and i will talk to you all next time Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing 
to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.